In the name of Jesus, Amen. <coughs> Almost a thousand and seven hundred years ago, a woman named Helena went to Jerusalem and she found the place and the actual cross on which Jesus was crucified. Her son was a Roman emperor at the time. His name was uh, Constantine. You know him as the Emperor Constantine, who was the first Roman emperor to become a Christian. And when he learned about what his mother discovered in the year 320, uh, 326 AD, he ordered the people to destroy a temple built to the false gods of Jupiter and Venus to completely turn it to dust and in its place to build a church, a sanctuary. And that church is called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, which still stands today. The church dedication was on September 14th and Constantine made it an official feast day uh, for the church and for Rome. Now that's what we're doing here today. <coughs> uh, we are observing the Feast of the Holy Cross. <coughs> I, I think this is remarkable because almost 2,000 years ago, Pontius Pilate, a representative of the Roman Emperor, condemned Jesus to die on a cross. And then a few centuries later, another Roman emperor knelt down and venerated that same cross on which Jesus was crucified. Now, to be clear, we're not bowing down to the cross here today as if it's some relic or as if we gain some sort of infused grace or the substance of grace that we're collecting. We're not worshiping the cross or praying to the wood of the cross or deifying the cross as if we're superstitious and it, as if it gives us some special powers or abilities or a magical thing. What we're doing here today is we're simply considering the profound mystery of what Christ did on the cross and what he turned the cross into. To really understand this mystery, we have to be honest about what the cross actually is. The cross is very graphic it is gory, and it is an awful thing. It is terrible. And I know it makes people upset. <clears throat> I know people don't like to see it. If a Roman soldier, for example, teleported and time-traveled here today and walked into the church, he would be utterly flummoxed at seeing uh, the cross here and how many crosses are here in the sanctuary. He would be flummoxed and befuddled to see what's hanging in the church, to see what you're wearing around your necks, what you have in your homes, what you have above your bed. He would see a crucifix, a cross in your homes, and he would be flabbergasted. What are you doing? Why do you have that? It, it would be something like us going to somebody's house here today and seeing a picture of a noose above their bed or an electric chair in their living room, just a painting of an electric chair, something like that, or wearing it around their neck, 
something so graphic. And if we went there, we'd think, look, there's something really, really wrong with somebody like this, somebody who does this. That's weird. Crucifixion was a form of capital punishment, and it was one of the worst kind. The word crucifixion simply means uh, to fix or to fasten someone to the shape of a cross. That's all it means. And the way they would do this is they would hammer nails through someone's wrists and their feet. And as painful as that sounds, that is the least painful part of the whole process. Uh, The point was to maximize the amount of pain over the longest amount of time. So to have the greatest amount of pain and stretch that out for as long as humanly possible. That's, that's how it was designed. That was the point of it. And so people didn't die on the cross through a loss of blood or just through pain or something like this. They died by asphyxiation. They suffocated to death. And this took over several hours, dozens of hours, even days of this agony. It's like drowning slowly without any water, just in the open air. The criminal, what he had to do is he had to push up from his pierced wrists and his feet. He had to lift himself up through that pain just to get his lungs up to a certain height so that he could take a breath of air and then collapse again. And then he'd have to do this over and over and over again, struggling to breathe, that his body would refuse to give up. He wanted to live, and he's struggling in this immense pain just to get one breath of air. And it was reliving that same pain over and over and over again. After dozens of hours of this, finally their legs and their arms would give out, their lungs would then collapse, their heart would fail, and then they would gasp for their final breath and then die. And it was awful. In fact, just saying this out loud is awful. It's revolting and it is gut-wrenching. And that's why this was reserved for the worst criminals, the worst sort of people, the most disgusting and awful people. As awful as it was, it was also just. It was fair. Because if you go, if you go out and you do something awful, well, then something awful will then happen to you. If, if you take someone's life, well, then your life will be taken and it will be publicly displayed before all people. And this was a, the cross was a warning to people that this is what, what murderers deserve. This is what thieves deserve. This is what you, you're, it's coming to you. This is exactly how you would want to see murderers and the worst kind of people treated. You wanted them to have this sort of death. It was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. <clears throat> so keep all of that in mind as we turn to John chapter 12, the gospel lesson for today. This takes place, this gospel lesson that you just heard, takes place on, um, on Holy Week. It was on Sunday of Holy Week. It takes place about five days before his crucifixion. Here we see some Greeks tell Philip, they, say, they, they go up to Philip and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And now I've heard uh, people talk about this text as if it's some sort of good and pious thing that they're asking for. I'm not quite sure that's the case here. Uh, I don't think they're asking to see uh, or to hear Jesus' words. I think they're coming to him to see his works. They want to see something miraculous. 
They've heard about these signs and wonders, and they want something else out of him. They seek signs and wonders from him. Whatever the case might be, they tell Philip. Philip then tells Andrew. Philip and Andrew go and tell Jesus. And then Jesus hears this, and he responds to them, and he says this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's as if Jesus said, <clears throat> it's as if Jesus said, look, if they want to see glory, if they want to see a sign and a wonder, I will show them glory like they have never seen before. Tell them to stick around about five more days, and I will show them the most glorious thing. And then Jesus explains what this glory is. It's not a miracle. It is not his transfiguration. It is not his resurrection. It is not his ascension. He says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now is my soul troubled. And what then shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What hour? It is the hour of his crucifixion. The hour where he's gasping for his final breaths. That's what he's talking about. And then he says these words, Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And verse 33 says, He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. <clears throat> the way Jesus would draw people to himself is not in spite of the cross, but by means of it. Because of it. His damnation upon the cross is the means by which he blesses us with salvation. And this is beautiful. I, I want you to put two images in your mind. Just imagine two pictures in your head. And the first picture is this. Picture Jesus high and lifted up, elevated, uh, sitting on a great throne, surrounded by angels of heaven, perfect and holy and radiant light beaming from his face and choirs singing all around him and this great divine light. I want you to picture that, as, as, um, picture that, Jesus high and lifted up in that way. And then now I want you to picture something else, Jesus high and lifted up, but this time on a cross with a crown of thorns, with blood on his face, naked and pierced and bruised, disfigured, hanging there helplessly on a cross, the way that the worst people are to die. Now, which one of these two images is more glorious to you? Now, which one is more glorious to Jesus? For Jesus, he would say this one, his cross. He says, that is my glory. That is where the Father glorifies me, his name. 
It's, it's this one, the one where he's nailed to a cross, where he's all alone, where he's sweating drops of blood with thorns in his brow, emaciated, choking on his own blood, gasping for air, dying for the sin and the guilt of the entire world. That one, he says. He says, that one is my glory. For so long, I thought that was the depths of his degradation, the greatest degree of his shame. But he calls it his glory, his crowning achievement, his most glorious day and hour. Why? Why in the world does he do that? Why why does he refer to that as his glory and not anything else? Doesn't he know how humiliating the cross is? And how excruciatingly painful it is. Doesn't he know that he's facing the burning wrath of God, a spiritual pain that we we can't even begin to imagine how painful that must have been? He knows these things. He knows what what the cross cost him. But he calls it his glory because of what the cross got him. Because for him, every single second of that cross was worth it because of you because it was for you for your sake for your salvation and that's why he calls it the glory of his the hour of his glory that is the very moment that he wiped away all of your sin forever the very moment he redeemed you not with gold or with silver but with his holy and precious blood to make you his own His death on the cross didn't win you the potential of the forgiveness of sins or the promise of forgiveness. His death on the cross forgave your sins. All of them. And this is the moment he made satisfaction for all of your sins. He atoned for the sins of the entire world. Not yours only. Not those who believe only. Not those of you who are here only. But those of the entire world. The reason I'm saying this is because there's a trend in a lot of churches to sort of move on from the crucifixion of Jesus. And it's a temptation for Christians to sort of put this in the rearview mirror. As if it's just some historical point in time, there was just a little blip here on the radar and the real thing, we're moving on from that. As if we have bigger and better things to focus on and consider. That's why some pastors won't pick uh, certain hymns that talk about the cross or the crucifixion of Jesus so explicitly and clearly. Instead, they'll pick some schmaltzy tune about Jesus walking in a garden or God in some field and meadows or something like that. A lot of churches will take down their crucifixes and hide them away. Sermons turn into self-help and practical applications for life, just about community and belonging. And I think it's because people think that the crucifixion of Jesus is no way to get people into the church, that, it's, that the cross of Christ is no way to make people Christians or get them into to heaven. They say, look, if we talk about the crucifixion, we're going to scare people away. If we, if we have a, a big ten and a half foot crucifix in our church, people are going to see that and just turn around and drive away. That's what's going to happen. 
They're going to think it's weird. They're going to get offended and things like this. And so they want to start with something else. They want to start with something softer, something more palatable, something to get them in the door and maybe ease them into, into this. Maybe then finally bring this up later. And they make the emphasis of their churches about fellowship or community or belonging or whatever other sort of thing like this that's fleeting, that's fleeting and temporary, that falls away. But that is not how God thinks. Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. St. Paul says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the very power of God. The cross and the preaching of it is the power of God to convert sinners, to make them Christians, and to give them eternal life forever. That is not something that we put on the back burner. That is the forefront. That is the chief thing. In the church, the first thing. Again, Paul himself says, For I have decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And he, along with all the apostles and all pastors who succeed them, say, We preach Christ crucified. That's the content of our preaching. Those of you who are here right now, you dear Christians who trust in Christ, your dear Lord and your Savior. You're not here in spite of the cross, but you're here because of it, by means of it. A lot of you, I know, live over an hour away, but you drive all that way to hear the preaching of the cross because you can be confident and sure that when you walk in here, You won't just see it with your eyes, but you'll sing it with your mouth and you'll hear it in your ears preached every Sunday, uninterruptedly, the the preaching of the forgiveness of sins constantly, in and out, in and out of season, day after day. You will hear this. You can be confident. In fact, today we have over a dozen Christians joining our congregations, all because of the preaching of the cross. And all people who join in the future who will come to this church, who are drawn to the Lord, will be here for the same thing. This cross is not an addendum or a footnote to the Christian life. It's not something that we happen to get around to every once in a while or we don't just show up on Christmas and Easter. This is the very center and core and heart of not only our weak, but our eternal life. Even the saints in heaven are still praising God for what he has done on the cross. Revelation 7 says, they worship the lamb, worthy is the lamb who was slain. They're remembering his death. Now, before I close, I want to say one last thing. And that's this, that we don't have a crucifix in our church or sing hymns about the cross and preach about it in sermons because the cross is just something that happened to Jesus. We do all these things because Jesus 
is something that happened to the cross. Jesus stripped the cross of all of its power. He took away all of its shame. The thing that people hide their faces from is the thing we wear around our necks and we put up in our homes and we put up in our churches and we look to. That's why we don't fear it. We have no fear of it anymore. It's the most gruesome thing. And yet we don't have an ounce of fear when we see it anymore. Because Christ has robbed it of all of its power. He has taken all of it away. He transformed the very cross into the very thing that gives us life. That when we look upon it, we see joy and peace and gladness beyond measure. By, by the fruit of one tree, Adam and Eve ate and they sinned and they died. And by another tree, the tree of the cross, hangs another fruit which gives us eternal life, whose flesh is true food, whose blood is true drink, and whoever eats and drinks of it has eternal life, and he will raise him on the last day. Jesus transformed his own cross and death and his grave into eternal life and joy. And he will do the same for yours. Because when your last hour comes, he will turn your darkest hour into your brightest day. When the light of your eyes grows dim, and your days fade, and your heart and your mind fail you, and when you breathe and gasp for your final breath of air, that is when he will cover you with an eternal weight of glory beyond compare. When he wipes away every one of your tears and he brings you to him forever. When you close your eyes in death, that is when you will open them to see the face of your dear Father in heaven forever. Amen. Hear the words of this hymn. My soul was carnal, blind, and bound by sin and never sought thee. Lord Jesus, though I ever found all else, no comfort brought me. No peace, no rest within my breast. My troubled soul remained unblessed. Of thee I ne'er bethought me. In pity then thou camest to me, thine arms to me extending. I heard thy voice come unto me and rest in peace unending. Emmanuel loves thee full well. He saves thy soul from death and hell and perils thee defending. To me, the preaching of the cross is wisdom everlasting. Thy death alone redeems my loss, on thee my burden casting. I in thy name a refuge claim from sin and death and from all shame. Blessed be thy name, O Jesus. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.